my name's Tom Jennings and this is the 24 Frames cast. Now, every now and then I will pick a director and watch their films in chronological order. Often when you think you know a director's body of work, you can end up unearthing a few gems and occasionally you also have to sit through a few duds. Recently, I decided I was going to do a Nicholas Ray marathon, and it was, in fairness, a mixed bag, to put it mildly. This year, I decided I was going to keep a spreadsheet of all the films I watch, and every time I watch one, rank it in terms of how much I liked it. I had thought about doing something like this for years. What were my favourite films? What were the ones that I considered to be essential or I suppose in my own way what would be part of Tom's canon of cinema history and it has been actually really good fun doing it because I didn't want to just brainstorm something I thought I would let it grow organically so at the moment for example my favorite film is Heat which I think everyone probably knew before then there's Under the Skin, Sorcerer, Groundhog Day, Paths of Glory, Tracks, Johnny Guitar, Touch of Evil, Rollable would make up my top 10 And at the bottom, as it stands at the moment, there's actually three Nicholas Ray films in my three worst films that I have ever seen. And obviously this spreadsheet, I dare say, will change greatly over the coming years. But that's not to say that Nicholas Ray hasn't made some truly great films, because he has. Johnny Guitar was on second viewing even better than the first time around. It is an incredibly strange film for reasons I will one day get into and legitimately one of the most original westerns ever made with a Joan Crawford giving one of the all-time great performances. Ray's most interesting period of me was when he began making films in Cinemascope. Rebel Without a Cause was a first time viewing and the first film he made in the format and I loved it. And, and, and even when the material is not quite up to it, Ray manages to make films that are entirely rewatchable purely on their visual pleasure alone. Bigger Than Life is a good example of this. It's a fairly daft film that in many respects could have in lesser hands been a fairly run-of-the-mill suburban drama. Yet Ray shoots the thing with such technical mastery of the scope frame, a dining room becomes as cinematic as Monument Valley at dawn. Two films in this period are worth seeking out are A Bitter Victory, starring Richard Burton and Party Girl with Robert Taylor, a war film and gangster film respectfully, these are two of his most underrated efforts. And Party Girl, despite its title and poster, is anything but the MGM musical you might at first think it is, and it simply looks gorgeous on Blu-ray. I picked up the Warner Archive edition, which I know now has started in the UK, so I'm hoping one day this will come over to us. You can pick it up on eBay for about 20 quid, however. Ray also made three 70mm films. The Savage Innocence, an Eskimo adventure story with Anthony Quinn, is bizarre and frankly terrible. His biblical film, King of Kings, is far more interesting. Ray injects the Jesus story with a hint of the Spartacus, and despite the daft cameo from Robert Ryan as John the Baptist, it's the type of thing a wet bank holiday is made for. His last film would be 55 Days in Peking, and he would be fired from the production before it was actually finished. It's a Zulu type of affair that never quite embraces the daftness enough for me, but with Charlton Heston and David Niven stealing every scene, it breezed by and has been beautifully restored and presented on Blu-ray. 
So overall, a mixed bag. He has three films that would make it to my essential canon list. Johnny Guitar, Rebel Battle Calls, and the one I'm going to talk about today, which is his 1950 noir film, In a Lonely Place. Mr. Steele last night? Yes, as I came home, I saw him going to his apartment with a girl. That girl was murdered between one and two o'clock this morning. I had Hollywood in the 1950s was undergoing a profound period of change. The industry was facing competition from the rise of television brought about the post-war baby boom. Going to the cinema was no longer the way people consumed entertainment and studios were increasingly worried that the revenue they were losing was going to lead to a terminal decline in box office returns. The pressure was on producers, writers, stars and directors to come up with hits as well as the technicians to find new ways to tempt audiences back to the cinema. And the studio system itself with its contract stars and artists, its huge output of films was beginning to wane. Hollywood was entering a new phase whereby stars wielded increasingly more power over their careers, free from the constrictive picture deals and studio micromanagement. And over all this hung the Cold War. In the post-war years, Hollywood was eyed with great suspicion by the powers that be as a hotbed of pro-communist sympathies. The flames of this were fanned by Senator Joseph McCarthy. No one was above suspicion from studio heads to makeup artists. By 1950, 151 entertainment industry professionals were on the blacklist and would struggle to find work for the best part of a decade. It doesn't seem that surprising that films of this period would reflect the climate of Hollywood was now in, and one of the best examples of it has to be in a lonely place. It's often called a film noir, but I rather feel this is a simplistic characterization. Certainly it has noir elements, but it's also a film about the industry itself, the conflict between art and entertainment, the psychological toll creativity takes on an individual, and a character study of a deeply flawed soul struggling to reconcile his place in the world with the people close to him. Nicholas Ray's wife, Gloria Graham, stars in the film alongside Humphrey Bogart. Ray would later discover Graham was committing adultery in a fashion that truly beggars belief. He actually found her in bed with his son Anthony from another marriage. This would be bad enough for anyone to take, however it was also worth noting that Anthony was aged just 13 at the time and would eventually marry Graham a few years later. Anthony and his father remained estranged for the rest of Nicholas Ray's life. And tension between Ray and Graham had been building for some time prior to the filming of In a Lonely Place. 
where he even said he married her out of infatuation and never really liked her all that much anyway she was it seems for him at least a very real world femme fatale with an allure almost impossible to resist and as i should get into the new course in a lonely place is a deeply reflective film of its stars and directors lives including bogard bogard was a notorious heavy drinker and fighter his childhood was fraught his surgeon father punched him so hard in the face he required stitches to his lip that was done so badly it would leave him with a lisp for the rest of his life a notorious womanizer he was rumored to have bedded over a thousand women and bogard was at this stage in his life married to lauren bacall his fourth and wife and partner till his death how it was clear that in his portrayal of Dixon Still, his character in the film, Bogart is channeling many of the inner demons that troubled him throughout his entire life. His character, Dixon Still, is a Hollywood writer. His best years may well be behind him. He hates lowbrow culture. He is a snob of sorts, thumbing his nose at an industry that has become obsessed with the bottom line. He is angry at the world and frequently acts out fits of rage, threatening people, punching them, and generally being quite unpleasant. Dixon is asked to adapt a popular novel into a screenplay. And whilst at a club where he was meeting his agent Mel, played by Art Smith, Dixon meets Mildred, the hat girl who works at the club, who is a massive fan of the novel and is invited by him to come back to his apartment and outline what the book is about. Mildred agrees and the pair bump him to a new resident in Dixon's apartment block, Laurel, played by Gloria Graham, who Dixon is clearly quite taken with. Mildred excitedly tells him about the novel. He's clearly not that impressed by it and thinks Mildred and thanks Mildred and offers her some money for helping him out. She leaves and Dixon goes about, goes to bed, only to be woken by police friend Brub the next morning. Brub and Dixon go way back. Dixon was his commanding officer during the war. And they go to the police station where we learn that Mildred has been killed after leaving Dixon's apartment. Captain Lockyer, the police officer in charge of the case, believes he is the main suspect and clearly Dixon is not that bothered and brushes it aside and is helped by Laurel who tells the police she saw him in his apartment and he could not possibly be the murderer. Dixon and Laurel begin a relationship. She is an actress hoping to make it big and begins to bring out the best in him when he begins the task of adapting the novel. Soon, however, she begins to fear Dixon, his flashes of anger, the rage that seemingly come from nowhere and the real nagging doubt that he might actually be the kill killer of Mildred. Now, In a Lonely Place is a film that makes you work hard. It's a type of film its central character, Dixon, wants to write, but knows that audience may balk at it in favour of something slightly more palatable. And it sickens him, yet Dixon is not a pretentious character. He is not a martyr dying at the altar of creativity. His position is in fact entirely relatable to the industry. He simply cares too much about it. Imagine, your, imagine, for example, it was your job to reboot the Star Wars franchise following its acquisition by Disney. I've role-played this in my head several times for sure, and I am 100% my idea for a trilogy would have been incredible. Yet, however, you attend your first story meeting and discover that instead you will be doing a virtual remake of A New Hope, and then God knows only what for the other two. I think it would be enough to turn anyone to drink and violence. And it's in a lonely place that Dixon is in because the film deconstructs the image of Hollywood and the artist. 
Hollywood's glamour is visible signs of success, box office numbers, awards, the glitz, the glamour and the romanticism. Yet, as we know, there are more to story and image. It's a place of exploitation on almost every level imaginable, as well as one built on the carcass of many an artistic dream. Writers, filmmakers, producers, actors tossed aside when career and whose careers drift away into obscurity. Occasionally, we get a comeback story so heartwarming it may have well have been scripted. But as in the case with someone like Harvey Weinstein, we're reminded that real life horror stories have and will play out in the real world. In a Lonely Place does to a degree romanticize the creative. Dixon is fighting the good fight in a culture war. He doesn't want Hollywood to be about mass appeal. He wants films that matter. The people around him are loyal, but make no mistake, Dixon is a horrid person and Bogart plays him with such an entitled sneer. You are more concerned for those around him who have to tolerate his frequent outbursts of vitriol and anger. We do tend to forgive the transgressions of artists, a little readily perhaps, mainly because we like what they do, but Dixon's self-absorption is narcissism on an epic scale. And don't forget all the meta-commentary on the state of Hollywood. This is also a film noir and of sorts, and burning away in the background is the murder of Mildred that needs to be explained. In the original screenplay, it was made completely clear that Dixon was not responsible for the murder. In the final version, it is not, however. Dixon seems so unbothered by the accusation that the dramatic tension that could come from believing he is the killer is virtually extinguished. However, more important to the film is whether or not Dixon could kill. And in one sequence, we cut back from Mel and, discuss and Dixon discussing what he should do in relation to the police investigation, back to the police going through his files. And there is a revelation of sorts in that we see Dixon is actually far worse than we ever suspected. Not only is he violent toward men, but also women. And it's a scene that makes me think about the film's opening. Dixon driving through the streets, looking at the world around him. In the same way we'd later see Travis Bickle do in Taxi Drover, both somehow managing to exist in a world they feel so detached from. And as Laura becomes romantically involved with Dixon, we spend more time waiting for her to find out what we know about him, that he's a deeply troubled person. And indeed, it may well be part of his appeal for her. And let's be clear, she is not 100% sure he is not the killer, despite providing his alibi. Yet, she is a calming influence on him. He is able to focus and to throw himself into his work. But In a Lonely Place sets up Dixon to become the murderer that possibly he has always had the potential to be. And having been invited over to dinner by Brub and his wife, Dixon gets the couple to act out how Mildred would have come to be killed. Dixon now plays the screenwriter and the director in a scene that becomes increasingly more disturbing the longer it goes on. And bathed in shadows with his eyes gleaming, Bogard looks terrifying, haunched over like a gargoyle. Where is this coming from? The writer, the man, what is going on in his head? And I have to be honest, on first viewing, I was convinced that Dixon was not the murderer, but he was going to eventually end up killing someone. Because ultimately, it's clear that what, what emerges over the film's running time is that In a Lonely Place, as the title suggests, is a film about isolation. The romance between Laurel and Dixon will never be at peace, or at least Laurel will not find peace with him due to his disposition to violence. 
and it is one of the most un-Hollywood of romances. Surely they are supposed to end up, well, surely they are supposed to end up like a couple do in the movies. Yet I think it is part of the bittersweet nature of the film. The sets in A Lonely Place were modelled on Nicholas Ray's house, and the bar that we frequently see was the one Bogard would drink in like Dixon Steele. And as Ray's marriage to Green collapsed during the film's production, he actually moved into the sets in order to get away from her. And you can easily imagine how he would have felt. And in Dixon, perhaps, he saw an element of himself, a man making his art, yet also loathing the world he had come to live in, consumed by anger and self-doubt. Although Bogard was at this time married to Bacall, he was not the man he was. Dixon is a classic noir anti-hero consumed by guilt and a suspect past. And come the end of the film, it's hard not to really imagine that he will be in, even in a lonelier place than one he is in now. With no woman and an ego perhaps deemed too much to deal with, the fights and the assaults are finally catching up with him. Tantalisingly, Bogard could have ended up like this, and despite the tough guy persona, he was like his best playing vulnerable to me, and Dixon Steele is a fascinating character, because I do genuinely believe that in many respects, this is a route Bogard could have gone down, and I think there's a self-knowingness in the fact that he took this role. Indeed, it was his production company that produced the film as well. He is one of Hollywood's most iconic actors, a true movie star from the studio system, and he did live the Hollywood dream. Yet, yet in a lonely place is a reminder there's a thin line between fame and ruin, and what makes this film so utterly compelling is understanding the lives of its principal's creatives. This was a film in which all concerned were challenging various inner demons from both their past and their present, and it's all there on the screen. I recently watched Spielberg's The Fablemans, a film that ends with its characters a creator about to start in Hollywood. It is the best moment in the film, and we all know where that particular journey ends. It is the Hollywood dream come true, a film made by Hollywood about the dream that is Hollywood. In a Lonely Place is the opposite. It's a Hollywood film about how much a terrible place it can be, a lonely place where the dream can turn into a nightmare. And Ray and Bogard perhaps knew that it could have been so different for them. Ray would go on from this point to have an even more successful careers and in my opinion make his best films. Bogard may well have peaked at this point, but make no mistake, he was grateful to have made it that far, even though I think we can safely say it is the end for Dixon Steele in this particular Hollywood story. Okay, so that's going to be it for this episode of the 24th Framecast. Many thanks for listening. You can follow me on Twitter. I am at Thomas24FC. You can email me at 24framescast at gmail.com. If you have any thoughts on Nicholas Ray, please do share them with me. And I will be returning soon with another episode. Many thanks. Bye.